Hello, friends. How are you? Great. I'm glad to hear it. Welcome back to another episode of the New Evangelicals podcast. So on this episode, I have Dr. David Gushy. Now, he, in my mind, is like the father of deconstructing. He's been doing this before it was cool, before it was hip. He has literally written the book on Christian ethics that many colleges use, and he has changed a lot of his views, including becoming LGBTQ affirming, and has really left the evangelical tradition um, in search for just bluer skies. So we had a nice discussion about what that entails, why he uh, he thinks that the evangelical church is just losing it. We talk about deconstructing. We talk about life after evangelicalism. His book, um, it's called After Evangelicalism. It's a great read about what to do going forward. David identifies himself as a Christian humanist, which honestly, I love that term. So this episode is just full of his wisdom and perspective, so I hope you really enjoy it. That being said, of course, if you can give us a review and a rating, it would help us so, 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 so much. Also, a huge shout out to all of the people who have donated recently. I really appreciate it. Honestly, full transparency, friends. New Evangelicals is probably about a 25 to 30 hour a week commitment. And I love all of it. And donating helps cover costs. It helps cover the cost for um, podcasting, uh, for Zoom, for Canva, all that other stuff. It just helps cover the cost and also helps to subsidize some of my time. So if you can donate, that would be such a huge help. All right, enough of me. Enjoy this episode. I will talk to you all next time. All right, David, it is great to have you back, although it is on a different podcast. So last time we talked, I think was in December or November. It feels like a lifetime ago, honestly. I was on a different podcast with uh, with some friends of mine, and since then, things have changed. Now I'm running the New Evangelicals podcast, and thanks for making time to come back on. It really means a lot. Uh, I am glad to be with you. I remember we had a great conversation uh Back in the heart of COVID days, uh, <laughs> uh, when it yeah. seemed like we would never do anything other than Zoom. So anyway, it's, it's good to visit with you again. Yes, yeah, I'm still working from home, and uh, I'm over in New Jersey. We're, I would say, we're like medium level lockdown. Still have to wear a mask everywhere, which um, I'm so over it. But you do what you got to do. Yeah. Um, but you know, hopefully within the year, we're we're really back to some sense of real normalcy here. I miss. I'm a musician. I miss concerts. I miss playing. So I'm looking forward to it. But yeah, thanks for again, for, for, for making the time, you know, I really want to hop right into it because, um, you wrote a book called, um, after evangelicalism and I read it a few months ago after our interview actually. And I was just like, man, this is the book that I think so many people like myself have just been, yes, like it, it, it puts real good language to things that we're trying to figure out. But, but before we get there, I want, I want people to know, like you, um, have been a professor for many years. You wrote the book Kingdom Ethics, which is like one of the standards in in curriculum for you know for colleges. Tell us a little bit about some of your background and credentials. Sure. Yeah. Um, I uh, had a Southern Baptist conversion experience in high school, and uh, from Catholic to Southern Baptist, pretty big change. I <laughs> uh, went to Southern Baptist Seminary, uh, became an ordained Southern Baptist minister. Went to Union Seminary in New York and got the PhD in Christian ethics. I uh, wrote a dissertation on Christians who rescued Jews during the Holocaust. That was my first book. Wow. That was 1994. So my career is almost 30 years old now. Um, and uh, I was a, you know, some would say one of the two or three leading Christian ethicists in the evangelical world. Uh, 
during the heart of that period, I wrote Kingdom Ethics with my friend Glenn Stassen, and that's been translated into like a dozen languages used all over the world wow, since, second, since second edition now, uh, still being used widely. Um, I, I would say I comfortably resided in center-left evangelical space, you know, for a mm -hmm. long time. Then I wrote a book called Changing Our Mind, Calling for the Rethinking of LGBT Inclusion, and that blew the doors off of a lot of people and blew me right out of <laughs> being accepted as an evangelical by the gatekeepers, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, so that was in 2014, um, six and a half years ago. And I've been, you might say now there's kind of two, <laughs> two uh, strands in my career. There's the ethics writing, and then there's the what to make of evangelicalism writing. Mm -hmm. And until that experience with changing our mind, I didn't really interrogate evangelicalism. I was just part of it on the center left side. Sure. I had my spot. Yeah, I didn't right. care what, I didn't care what Pat Robertson or Jerry Falwell said that much because, right. because they were a different part of the family who, you know, the, the embarrassing uncles or whatever. Right. You know? Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then after changing our mind and the vitriol, and the hate, hatefulness mainly towards gay people, and then towards me because I was standing with gay people. Hmm. Um, I began to, to to ask myself, well, what is this community, and did I ever really belong, and what do I make of it? And um, and so I wrote a memoir called Still Christian that came out in 2017, where I told my personal story. But in this new book, after evangelicalism, it is more of a top to bottom interrogation, deconstruction, reconstruction kind of project related to evangelicalism. And the headline is, I'm well and truly and completely done with evangelicalism. And the identity does not look nearly as sturdy or constructive as it used to. Yeah. Um, and I'm happy to leave it behind while not leaving Jesus behind. Yeah, well, I think that, so obviously I run an account, the new evangelicals, so a different uh, attempt on kind of the same process in a lot of ways. And you know, a, a lot of people that I found on this account and in the community and also even in my personal life have really um, been going through this deconstruction process, which right now is really a big buzzword in a lot of circles. And I understand why it's, you know, it's, it, there's a lot there, a lot, a lot to unpack. Um, and I have found that, you know, I have, I call them ingredients. You know, you throw a few ingredients into this uh, conversation for a believer and they're going to become a deconstructing Christian. Like the LGBTQ issue, hell's a big one. Um, the, the issue of race and racism is a big one. You throw, the, you throw those things in, you know, in the oven at 400 degrees and out comes a, a Christian who goes, what do I believe? So, I mean, I guess let, let's start with LGBTQ perspective, because I, I really feel like this is one of the, by far, the biggest ones, which really blows my mind, because the more I think about it, um, even if, let's say, someone holds a more conservative ethic uh, of you know human sexuality and says, you know what, I don't think it's it's whatever, it's, it's good, you know, Christen, in Christendom, people argue over stuff all the time. You know, John MacArthur, who will say women can't teach, and um, Bill Johnson, who says women can, are still kind of lumped into by all the gatekeepers of like some form of Christian. But you say I'm LGBTQ affirming, and they think this is like a, a no way. It's impossible. You can't, you know, you, you, uh, you can't be a Christian to have this view. Why do you think there isn't room for this perspective to live safely in these circles? I just don't understand it. Um, I think it's political as much as anything in this in this sense 
Um, the, the gatekeepers of the evangelical community have been losing one fight after another mm. since the 70s. Yeah. Um, and I've studied, you know, I mean, they used to say, and you may know people who still do say, things like uh, divorce is always wrong. Um, or women should not work outside the home. Yes. Um, or, as you know, he's, you know, no woman should ever teach a man. Right. We have um, uh, abortion should be illegal. Yep. Nobody should ever have sex outside of marriage, ever. Yeah. Okay. All of those were gender and sex-related battles that evangelicals have been routed on since the 70s. Yes. Culturally and to a very large extent within the lifestyle of their own people. Yes. Um, yes. But certainly culturally. Right? Yeah. And, um, right. And so the, the idea, I think, is that the LGBT issue is like the last stand. Mm. Um, we've lost everywhere else. <clears throat> we can't believe we've lost everywhere else because we're clearly right. They're clearly wrong. But, um, <laughs> right. but on this one, we must, we must draw the line. Um, it reminds me of um, Fiddler on the Roof. You know, the great old play Fiddler on the Roof, where uh, Tevya, the, the dad, is he has to compromise on a number of things, but he's not able to compromise on his daughter marrying a, a Gentile. Mm. Um, that's like, uh, no, I, I cannot compromise on that, and I will have to disown you. LGBT inclusion is like, no, if we give up that, we've given up. It's like losing the last battle. Yeah, yeah. It's I, I just finished the book, um, Jesus and John Wayne. Yeah. And uh, man, what a great like just story she really tells of like how so much of this has happened. And when you see it from that from that perspective, it is like wow, it's so crystal clear. It does seem like like because the evangelical movement has really pushed out a lot of the center left perspective of that that family, um, and then has kind of been taken over as we have talked about in our last podcast by far right politics. I mean, even like the 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 right uh, right wing media world, they know their audience, they know who they're talking to, they are talking to evangelicals, mm -hmm. and they use that language intentionally. So it, it would make sense, you know, with what you're saying that that really they're getting this from this idea of if, if we lose this, we lose the culture war forever, and America becomes this you know communist, socialist, Marxist, all in one, you know, some kind of bad thing. And so we have to stand on 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 this mountain uh to defend the faith but by faith i really mean like our white american christian heritage faith not like maybe the biblical faith yeah, yeah after a while um the biblical arguments um don't seem to matter nearly as much as um we have to win this one there's a lot of fear driving it yeah and um and the other thing is when you're losing the broader culture, because the dream of the evangelical movement going back to the 40s yeah. was to win the culture for Christ. Right, right. As they understood Christ, right? Right. So, yeah. so they had an evangelistic and cultural vision. Um, 
And now the culture is saying, no, thanks, not interested, right? Exactly. So, so they've lost the culture. If you've lost the culture, then the only battles that you can really meaningfully fight are within the church. Mm. So, you know, so like you can't, they can't reverse gay marriage, which became Supreme Court decision 2015. That That's not going to change. But they can push out anybody in the Christian community that they can reach to uh, to say no, you're not okay. They can yeah. do that. They can they can cancel speaking appearances and book contracts and uh, get people fired. Yeah, uh, within the Christian world, and so so that's what it is. I think they're have they're frustrated over the loss of cultural power, and a lot of a lot of energy is is uh, on heresy hunting within within the community. I think. Man, that's such a great way of putting it, heresy hunting. I, I follow, I, you know, not only have I, have I come from this world, I grew up in a very Calvinist, fundamentalist you know, upbringing. Um, so I know a lot of these guys, you know, the Paul Washers, so to speak, of, of, of the evangelical movement, the the James Whites, the Apologia Radios. Like, I, I know all those guys. I follow them. I listen to them. Um, and they really, that, that group, they really do love to heresy hunt. I mean, they even have podcasts devoted to picking on other preachers. And there's a whole YouTube subculture of people, you know, doing these sermon reviews where they'll find a, a sermon by, by some popular pastor who I, I think I would say I have, I have problems with too. I wouldn't call a heretic, you know, and they'll just rip this guy to shreds while he's a heretic. I, it really blows me away. I think that's why so many of us are, are really that's one of the big ingredients of like why for me I was like I, how can we how can they how can we really think we have it right out of all of human history and everyone else with any nuance any difference just has it wrong it doesn't make any logical sense to me um and it's not a very attractive face of christianity right i mean no, not at all you know what, the reason i converted and became a born again southern baptist christian as a high school kid was not because you had angry heresy hunters out there, right? What's attractive about that? You know, right. what it was, was because there were people who loved Jesus and who loved people yeah, and who welcomed a, a rowdy 16 year old kid like me to come to the youth group and ask their, ask his questions about Jesus and, and study the Bible with them and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, when a group becomes, uh, doctrinaire and angry and heavily politicized and focused on who we're against it drives away rather than attracts yeah and and then that just exacerbates the problem of hey we're losing the culture we're losing our own young people what's wrong we need the reason and so the diagnosis becomes the reason we're losing all these people is because we must not be doctrinally rigid enough so let's be even more rigid right Yes. If, if we could just protect orthodoxy, we could protect the church. Um, but in, instead, uh, it just drives away more and more people. So that doesn't part of what my book, no. yeah. Sorry, I didn't cut you off. Go ahead. Part of what my book is about is about the spirit. It's about reclaiming a winsome, loving, open, uh, Jesus-seeking spirit as opposed to this kind of constant eruption of anger all the time. Um, yeah, I, I want to get into this term Christian humanist that that, that you use um, at, uh, in just a, a minute here. I just wanted to say briefly um, a second ago, it, it really, you know, you mentioned how like, you know, um, people wanted to get more rigid and, and orthodox in their beliefs. But the ironic part is when you really look at the evangelical landscape, no one really agrees on almost anything. 
And they really don't. Even the term, what is the gospel, right? Like the Apologia Radio's version of the gospel is is different than like the Bill Johnson's. And that's different than the Leighton Flowers. Of, you know, and, and, they, and, then, and then Leighton Flowers says Calvinist is, uh, Calvinism is really wrong. And then Apologia Radio says it's really right. I mean, they really don't agree on almost anything, but we're told that there's an absolute truth that we know that we have to live by. I just find that so ironic. Um, um yeah. the discovery of the discovery of pluralism um is a really is a really important challenge to people who are raised in a context in which they are told we have the absolute truth, right? Yeah. When you discover I mean, yeah, you you know there's people who believe other things and other religions, but when you discover that the pluralism and the differences of interpretations go deep within the Christian family. Right. And within the part of the Christian family that we have called evangelical. Yeah. Um, then the absolutism becomes harder to sustain. You need a, a different way of thinking about truth um, and a different way of thinking about conviction um, that does not have that kind of rigidity, but does have some solidity to it. And that's what I'm going for in my book. Not rigidity, yeah. but solidity. Right. Yeah. Unpack yeah. that for us. I'm, I'm really because that is where I wrestle as well. Like I'm trying to find some kind of conviction without coming across like a fundamentalist on the other side, right? So, so give me give me your thoughts on that. Well, um, a conviction is uh, a belief so powerful enough for us that we would stake our life on it. That uh, it helps fundamentally to define our identity. And that we might just be willing to die for if we had to. Hmm. Okay. Um, a conviction is a precious thing. But um, a conviction remains uh, a human thing. It, therefore, it is susceptible to error, uh, to incompleteness, fallibility. Uh, and and the need for revision. Mm -hmm. So, um, what a lot of us were taught was: here's a pastor who 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 interprets the Bible in such and such a way. Mm -hmm. What he says is, I'm not interpreting the Bible. I'm just telling you God's own truth. Yes, God's word. When I say God has selected everyone in advance for salvation or damnation, that's God's truth, not my interpretation, God's right. truth. Yep. And um, and if you challenge it, you're not challenging that pastor, you're challenging God. Right. <clears throat> or you're challenging the Bible. That's right. Um, and so what that does is uh, it creates a kind of all or nothing. Um, well, if I can't buy double predestination, I guess that means I'm not a Christian. I guess I better mm -hmm. just go be an atheist because um, it would be so much better if we could say the scripture is complex. Interpreting is an art. Mm. It is an ongoing conversation that has been happening for 4,000 years with Judaism, 2,000 years with Christianity. Yeah. Um, it is a, a series of arguments that are never resolved. <laughs> Yeah. Um, here is where I stand right now. Here is what I believe. I have, this is a conviction for me. I've staked my life on it. 
But in principle, it is always possible that it is wrong. Hmm. We're going to present it to you in that spirit. And we're going to attempt to remain in a community of argument and conversation as opposed to a dictatorship in which I tell you the absolute truth and you agree or you leave. Wow. Yes. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> the way I say it in three words or a couple words, it's just more seats at the table. You know, like, can't we, can't we exist in this, in, with these perspectives and give and take and learn? Cause we need the different perspectives. They help us to better, better understand, you know, the Christian faith in the Bible. So that's, that's so well said. So let's, let's head over to this Christian humanist idea. So I'm, I'm listening to your book and you drop this bomb and I'm like, wait, my evangelical sensibilities are just, the sirens are wailing, you know, humanists are liberals, they're godless, they're atheists, you know? So, I mean, how do you define this Christian humanist concept and, and what does it mean for the believer? Um, it's on page 60 in this book that everybody should read uh, called After Evangelicalism. Um, you know, I, I surprised myself in, in ending up with this phrase. I have never used this phrase in my writing before now. Okay. Um, but, but it really works for me. Here's how I define it. Um, rooted in a sense of common humanity and a quest for human unity. So we realize that Christians are humans like others, and we are part of the human family. Yes. Uh, and we, we don't mainly want to be about how we're against those people. We want to be about uh, loving all of our neighbors. Yes. Um, hopeful about the moral potential of, of human beings while realistic about human sinfulness. I've not abandoned a doctrine of sin. I have a very robust doctrine of sin. Mm. But, but the, my doctrine of sin includes the church. The church is also a community of sinners. And the potential of humanity is not exclusive to Christians. Other humans have, have potential too. Yes. Respectful and engaged with the common human intellectual enterprise. So. We don't dig in against exterior learning. We see what it might have to teach us. Mm -hmm. uh, resolute in respecting human freedom of conscience and the proper independence of the human mind. So we, <clears throat> we respect the quest for truth and we look for what we can learn. Um, concern with the well-being of all human beings in this world and not just their souls in the next world. So... Mm a proper uh, concern for this world and the suffering of this world. Yeah. Look, looking for common ground and peaceful solutions to shared human problems and understanding Christianity to be for humans, not against the world mm. and not mainly about protecting Christian prerogatives, privileges, or purity. Um, so I think a lot of, the worst expressions of Christianity are fundamentally inhumane. Yes. Um, they strike other people as cruel, unkind, intolerant, um, angry, uh, disrespectful to the to others, including others within the same community. Um, and you know what's so interesting about this, Tim, is like when people act cruel inhumane, coarse, disrespectful, people don't react well to that, right? Mm -hmm. And they say, well, if that's what Christianity is, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Yep. And then the Christians who act that way claim persecution or, or uh, you know, this is, yes. this is just because these people don't want to follow Jesus like, yep. like, like us. Yeah. 
I mean, obnoxiousness is obnoxious. <laughs> right. It is, right? Yeah. And, and um and so uh a concern for for um the decent treatment of all human beings and the love of Christ being our, our predominant characteristic um is a lot of I don't know. When when you get defensive, angry and reactionary, all of that flies out the window. Yeah, I I I I can't tell you like just how much of the language you're speaking to so many of us because these were all of our objections. And we felt like because of how we were raised, how I was raised, by by the way, I, I, I always say this, by great parents, they weren't bad people at all, but just the theology I was around in my church circles and that, that I picked up, um, I was taught that if I didn't believe those things, if I didn't believe in an eternal conscious torment perspective of hell where people are burning on fire forever, I couldn't be a Christian. Like just couldn't, like impossible. And what I realized was that as I grew up and I deconstructed and all this stuff is that really the tradition I grew up in is very one small piece of a very much larger pie. Um, and that there's many different perspectives on, for this example, hell and, and other issues. Right. Um, so, I mean, let's talk about, so Christian humans, I love that idea. I'm sure we're going to weave that into some more of these conversations here. Deconstruction, right? I, I'm, I know your, your, your fingers on the pulse here. How do you see deconstruction happening in, in people that you've talked to? Um, and like, how do you offer maybe from your perspective, some paths forward? Um, I've been really struck even since the book came out in August. So that's nine or 10 months now. Yeah. By how that word deconstruction has swept the landscape. Um, and I have some ambivalence about it. Okay. Um, I think that, I mean, at one level, deconstruction is simply, I was taught something and I realized that I, that I, I cannot accept that. I cannot go with it hmm. um and especially again i was taught it in a maximalist form this is god's truth yes right. capital g capital <laughs> right. g underlined right, bold, right. <laughs> um, exactly so, that's right so i mean everything it seems like in a lot of our churches everything is capital letters and underline and bold right kind of like trump's tweets you know, <laughs> yeah right? exactly um so so this, so part of deconstruction, in a sense, sometimes it begins with realizing you have to take the capital letters and the underlining and the bold off and say, oh, this is actually somebody's interpretation. Okay. Yeah. So that's the first step. This is a human being who had an interpretation as opposed to God's man who knows the truth, right? Uh, that's, a, that's a deconstructive move. <laughs> and then actually, no. Nah, um, I can't believe that anymore. Um, the thing that is frightening or sad to me is I think bad religion produces bad reactions. Hmm. Uh, that'll tweet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, bad religion produces secularism. Bad religion produces atheism, produces agnosticism. Because if what you were taught as Christianity or religion is awful, then the most natural reaction is to say, well, forget it. I guess I'll be a secularist and, yeah. and um, I certainly never set foot in a church again. Mm -hmm. So a lot of deconstruction is, is uh, negative in the sense that it is undoing the damage. Um, but 
and a lot of what I see on Twitter or whatever, there's a lot of um, poking at what needs to be deconstructed, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of toppling idols, yeah. um, theology, and specific individuals, yeah. kind of knocking them down. But I am a pastor, and as I say in my book, I want to help people find Jesus again on the other side. Mm. I don't think Jesus has ever been the problem. It's what we have done with, with Christianity. Yeah. And so I'm more interested. I mean, I've done my own deconstructing, but I'm more interested in what do we reconstruct on the other side? That you don't have to abandon the Christian faith. You might have to alter your understanding of it dramatically. Yeah. Um, I think that's really well said because this audience for this podcast is very much in this in-between. I can't tell you how many DMs I get on my Instagram daily. I, I love the church, but I'm rethinking everything. I don't know where to go. I don't want to lose my faith. You know, I'm most of the people that I encounter in my in my circle are have not deconstructed into atheism. Although there are a few, which is whatever. It's you know not not my decision. It's their decision. Um, but most of them that I encounter are like, I don't want to lose this Jesus thing. But I feel like, because of how I grew up, if I lose the um, LGBT exclusion and I lose the hell and, and lose the Calvinism, that I can't be a Christian. There's no way to, without you know being a heretic, essentially. So I think that there there are, there, that there is like a remnant almost of people who are like, Okay, I didn't ask for this. I'm rethinking everything. I'm full of anxiety because we we know that religion ties to your, your, who you are as a person. So when you start touching that, your your whole foundation is swaying like a like a skyscraper in an earthquake, right? And it's very anxiety inducing. Um, and so I think what you said is very key because people want that. I mean, a lot of people do not want to give up Jesus, and I, and I think that. That, that they see what, what you're saying of, yeah, I don't think it's like the Sermon on the Mount that is the problem. I think it's like how I was taught to ignore certain parts and, and highlight others. So what are, for you, like, you know, if, if someone is out there listening to this and they're like, you know, yes, uh, this is me, what is your advice to them? Like, what I get a lot is, where do I start? So I always recommend like, like the Bible Project. They're great to understand the Bible in a whole different way or the Bible for normal people with, 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 with uh, Pete Enns, for example, you know, mm-hmm. the podcast world is huge. What do you recommend? Where do people start when they're in this? Um, well, what I did, I'll, you know, you know, there are a lot of great resources out there, but I would say, yeah, definitely, it's just as a pastor, let me be a pastor for just a second. I would say you may not need people to feed your anger after a while. You probably have plenty of anger <laughs> on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, what you need is resources for reconstructing. Mm, okay. Right. And, and it isn't just about, I disagree on LGBT or I disagree on uh, whiteness or racism, or I disagree on sexuality in general. It's, um, and what I did in my book is to go back to scripture and, and epistemology and method. How do we know what we know? I think that, um, so what I do in the book is a lot of work on the Bible, how we interpret the Bible, what is the Bible, yeah. Um, how do we respect the Bible and let it be what it is instead of making an idol out of it? Um, totally. How do we how do we allow dialogue and questioning and argument with Scripture and in community? And then where else do we go for insight about what we should think and believe? The idea that. Um, 
because we are human beings, we see through a glass darkly. All human beings uh, have epistemology challenges because we do not have infallible access to truth. Right. Um, a lot of a lot of what fundamentalism has been about is to try to pretend that we do have infallible access to truth. Yeah. Um, and that the Bible offers it. Um, Catholic fundamentalism makes the makes it the church. It's the same thing. I need to know that there's one place in the world where I don't have to have any questions or have any doubts. I have absolute truth. Mm. And the fact is that there is no such place. Um, but we do have inspired truth that can be found in the Bible, but in the community yeah. uh, of serious learners, studiers, and livers, and you know, might say people trying to follow Jesus, we can find that truth together. I'm trying to ratchet down the anxiety um, to recognize the concept of like quest, journey, struggle, questioning, um, and that we can do that together, that Jesus welcomes people on the journey with him uh, in that posture. Um, and, and that we need a community around us of people who give us the space to ask those questions and have those dialogues, right? Yeah. So it does involve sometimes leaving behind communities that have been important to us, mm -hmm. like churches. If we find that there's no space for our questions there, um, our friends or our family members who, who just will not allow us to ask our questions, then we need to find other communities where we can ask those questions. Yeah, I, I think a lot of us feel um, homeless in a way or kind of exiled. I mean, even in my experience recently, three weeks ago, I was asked by my church of uh, six years of being involved in volunteering and being part of like the leadership on a volunteer level to kind of either choose between like me doing this with my account or like, you know, not serve anymore, essentially. You know? wow. So, wow. yeah, it was really intense, you know, and it was there. There was no, it wasn't bitterness or anger. It's just sad, really. Like, you know, they're, they're good people out there. They, they, they weren't malicious about it, but, you know, they just said, this is our conviction and we can't have someone who disagrees with us on the platform also serving and playing music, um, even though it's on social media. And so, but my story is is common. I mean, again, yeah, I, the yeah. stories I get are, are common. And then what happens is people don't know where to go. So they go to social media and then accounts like mine blow up because we're trying to provide some kind of digital space in a place that, and, and you know, and the reason reality is, David, is that I know that social media and Zoom, it's not the real deal, right? Like I tell people all the time, you can't do real theology on Instagram. It's impossible. You have to go to the sources and do your own work. But I think people are really struggling mm -hmm. with trying to find in-person communities that are, are that are welcoming, especially in like an institutional sense, right? The other problem I think with this is that because a lot of us have not been trained on on how um, genuine community, that word's such a buzzword too, but genuine community functions, once we have some resistance or some tension or a problem, we tend to want to shut down because last time we had problems, it ended up hurting us, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of layers to unpack there. So, I mean, what do you think about that? Like, how do people who feel, I have nowhere to go, like, where do, where do they start? Um, I would not, um, I would not underestimate the significance of, um, of the of the online space because hmm. because it, it for for many people it helps to retain sanity and faith to just to listen to a podcast like yours right yeah uh, and to, it's like oh okay there are other people who are in the same space that I am I'm not crazy yeah. um, I'm not going to hell uh, <laughs> you know right. it's really going to be okay so so I mean and I've I've talked to so many different podcasts uh, over this year um, so 
you know, I'm sure you recommend various ones to your to your listeners, but yours is one. But Straight White American Jesus and so you know, good. Uh, Trip Fuller's, you know, there's so, there's yeah. so many, right? Homebrewed, right? Trip and is great, by the way. Sorry to interrupt you. I yeah. did this interview with, with, with Pete Enns for the first time. I'm like, I love this guy. He's sarcastic. He's funny. He's brilliant. Uh-huh. So I just wanted to throw yeah. that out there. And it, I mean, there's <laughs> dozens of others, right? Yeah. Um, so um, in the book, actually, in after evangelicalism, I talk about church options. And, you know, soon people are, go- are going to be set free to go back to church. And, and I, I think it's going to be interesting to see what people do now. Um, there there are, in fact, I'm doing premarital counseling for a couple right now that is in this post-evangelical space. Hmm. And they're trying to figure out where to go to church right. in Tennessee. <laughs> right? Right. right. Um, and they know that the hot, you know, rock concert, evangelical church services that they would once have found appealing. Yeah. They just it's not going to be that it's not going to be okay for them anymore because even though there's a lot that's appealing about it, they're there. Yeah. They have convictions like on LGBT inclusion that are not going to move. Right. And so a lot of then there's a grief here. Let's own that grief. A lot of where one mo- once might have looked to go to church, you can't go anymore. Okay. That's so, right. So, so where do you go? Um, and I talk about there are mainline church options that we were told you don't want to go there because it's a bunch of daggum liberals, right? Yeah. Um, but but there are Methodist and uh, moderate Baptist and Episcopalian and United Church of Christ and other some of them are preparing and have begun to welcome evangelical refugees. Um, and the the problem is a lot of times the the cultures and way of doing things in those churches is so different from how the evangelical kids grew up that it's it's hard to make that leap. Yeah. Right. But it's still worth trying. And there are some of these churches that are that are beginning to explicitly minister uh, intentionally to evangelical refugees. I say in the book, there's at least 25 million evangelical refugees in the U.S. Wow. So and I think there's more than that now. Wow. Um. So so there's going to be an audience, and there's also some evangelical churches that are um, transitioning to post-evangelical. But one of the one of the markers, I think, is are they clearly all in about LGBT inclusion? Mm. But for me, that has become non-negotiable. And for a lot of post-evangelicals, it has also become non-negotiable. And so if that's the case, then you, you can rule out a lot of options right away. But it is yeah. still true that in there are not post-evangelical church good options for post-evangelicals in every community still they're just not um yeah um man it is funny you know um i i visited a french church a, a while ago that was anglican and um inform a lot you know the church was very traditional very conservative right it's very liturgical yeah. for me it, it's at least my definition of conservative right right and then um we're sitting there with the priest and we're it's like 7 a.m morning prayer on like a wednesday and the preach uh, the, the priest is just praying against uh the gentrification of their neighborhood and praying for uh you know just policies and my wife and i while praying kind of open up our eye to the left like look at each other like did he just pray against gentrification like a real <laughs> social <laughs> issue and it was kind yeah. of the first taste for us that a lot of these main lines might be more conservative in form, but much more progressive in theology or whatever whatever term you want to use. And that is something that is interesting because, again, you would think 
these like rock concert churches that are so progressive culturally in their form, you know, would also be progressively thinking, rethinking their theology. But a lot of them have a very, very conservative, like you said, they're not LGBTQ inclusive, for example. And it, it is kind of almost like a bait and switch, you know, like, wow, this church is so relevant, only to find out that that that, that they're preaching hard determinism. You know? Right. That is the reality. If you go to an Episcopal church and you see all those vestments and smells and bells and the book of common prayer and the kneeling right. and the, and it's like, well, the, the right word for that though, isn't conservative. Am I, am I feel conservative? It's um, formal or liturgical yes. or traditional, right? Yes. In, yes. in worship. But then when the, when the priest opens his mouth or her mouth and talks about love and justice and inclusion, you realize that maybe you're home. You, <laughs> right. you, you kind of have to learn how to do the, the liturgy. Um, yeah. I myself am kind of there. Probably if I were starting a church right now, it would be uh, a fairly liturgical, fairly uh, traditional, reverent Baptist church with a lot of Anglo-Catholic elements to it, uh, deeply biblical preaching from my perspective, but, uh, but sloughing off the, the, you know, the conservative uh, and, and I think damaging theology that so many of us were exposed to. Would you, know? you um, recognize Eucharist every Sunday as well? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, that, that's one, that was one for me as well. I'm like, wait, we're kind of commanded to do this every time we meet and we almost never do it. And the way we handle it is so individualistic and so trite, you know, like yeah. Yeah, anyway, different discussion, but yeah, um, yeah, I'm with you on that. So, you know, okay. I want to ask you one more kind of question about, about some things before I move on to kind of some closing thoughts, but, yeah. um, and I know, I know I'm, I'm peppering you with like all different topics because there's just so much here. I feel like, Oh, where do I even start? But in your perspective, and this one hits home for me, and I get a lot of people who who grew up in the Calvinist tradition, right, of viewing God. How much do you think of like the the, the quote unquote new Calvinism, you know, the, that Mark Driscoll kind of era, really impacted even beyond people who identify as Calvinist? Um, I think it was pretty widespread and really impacted a lot of what caused me to even deconstruct. Um, my look back to fundamentalism. Um, and then the birth of modern evangelicalism leads mm -hmm. me to conclude that Calvinists always had a disproportionate influence. Um, evangelicalism was supposed to be a big tent theological movement mm -hmm. with everything from Arminians, Anabaptists, some Pentecostals, uh, Quakers, you know, uh, Methodists, uh, you know, the different denominations, different parachurch organizations and different theologies. But the new Calvinism around uh, John Piper yep. and then followed by people like Al Mohler. Uh -huh. Then if you add Driscoll, part of, as you read from Jesus and John Wayne, part of what you get when you move over there is this ultra-masculinist kind of um, tough guy uh, with a fair amount of hypersexualization of a certain type too right yep um and all of that didn't have to go with calvinism right but it mm. it did i do think that if you enshrine patriarchy as your leadership principle 
then you invite toxic masculinity into it. It doesn't have to be that way, but it often goes that way. Yeah. But yeah, um, Calvinism has has had a disproportionate influence um, beyond what it what it really should have in terms of like um, the actual beliefs of a lot of evangelical Christians. You know, take take this other strand. Let's talk about the um, the piet the Pietist and conversionist strand or revivalist strand of evangelical. Mm. That's what I was brought into with with the Southern Baptist, right? Yeah. Um, God loves everybody. Um, our goal is to tell everybody about Jesus. Uh, everybody has a chance to say yes or no to Jesus. Yeah. The signal event is the revival in which we try so hard to get people to walk the aisle and follow Jesus, right? Yes, yes. Um, and then and then the goal is is that uh, burning of the Holy Spirit and the life of the person leading to conversion and personal transformation. Yeah. See, that is a very different language than New Calvinism. Mm. Um, Calvinism of that, you know, is is very um, doctrines of grace, uh, pound people with doctrine, make sure they believe it exactly right, heresy hunting. Yeah. Um, and if people are offended by eternal conscious torment and double predestination it's just because they're not tough enough they're not <laughs> right. they're not willing to deal with the truth right right exactly so you know so there's no reason why that strand should have been so powerful but it became powerful and it came to dominate what a lot of people stood evangelicalism to mean though of course you're talking about a movement that at speak maybe had 75 million people in the u.s it wasn't only calvinism in that movement right but the calvinist the Calvinists ended up punching above their weight. They ended up having more influence, partly because of the the, the charisma and the uh, prolific nature of the writing uh, that came out of that world. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I think about even before I knew what this was, I knew who John Piper was, knew who John MacArthur was. I, I knew these people, you know, who were just very, they just, in, in, in a lot of that language, of like, um, you know, I could do nothing good, right? Like that, it kind of got softened a little bit and kind of exported to other strands of the evangelical faith, yeah. you know? Like I would go to my Baptist church and hear that. I go to my AG church, hear the same exact thing, you know? Um, so it was interesting to see how it spread. So, you know, I, I, man, all right. So as we get ready to kind of land the plane, starting to coast down a little bit, and again, thanks for your time. Thanks for, thanks oh. for making the effort to be here. Um, I know for this audience, it's going to be such a breath of fresh air to know that there are people in your circle who have really thought through this stuff, who are kind of leading the charge, because we need people love to know, like, okay, this person, you know, has his PhD, this person has his doctorate. It just helps people understand, like, there's a certain level of authority here because you've thought through these things most more than the, than the average person. Um, let's kind of land the plane. You know, the current evangelical, the current state of the evangelical church. And even the term evangelical, we both know, is such a big a big term. But it really seems like the overall big picture themes are that we're still in bed with politics. I, I follow quite a few accounts of pastors, people who have large churches, thousands of people, who are actively denying that Joe Biden was uh, was elected uh, legally. Um, I see a lot of QAnon-type stuff, a lot of anti-vax stuff now in these circles. It really seems like the evangelical movement has been taken over by more of a, of a political ideology trying to cram the Bible into it than the opposite. 
is is there hope for the evangelical movement going forward? Because it seems like from everything I can tell, I see more and more doubling down. I mean, even the Gospel Coalition, they're writing a book on deconstructing. You know, it's like in the the the, the, the chapter titles are just you can just tell where they're coming from. You know, mm. why why it was progressive, but I'm not anymore. It's like one one of the titles, like, okay, great, here we go. You know, how all roads lead back to nice conservative evangelicalism. So what are your thoughts on that? Um I like the word reactionary to describe overall what has happened to white evangelical Christianity in the U.S. Reactionary means um, predominated by a spirit of fear, anger, and resistance to cultural trends that this side considers to be threatening. Mm. Okay. Um, I think the predominant and I'm actually, uh, just before I got on with you, I was, I'm putting the finishing touches on an essay right now for a, a book uh, out of Edinburgh in Scotland, where they, they surveyed the state of Christianity all over the world. And they asked us, my friend and I, Isaac Sharp, to, to do a, uh, an essay on U.S. white Christianity. What do you want to say about U.S. white Christianity? Oh, man, they asked, them, they asked the wrong person. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, we, and Isaac and I conclude that... Um, that it goes something like this. White Protestants for the longest time believed that we defined and had the right to define not just our own religious communities, but the United States of America as a whole. Mm -hmm. This was our country. And, And you add white, straight, male Protestant Christians, wasp, straight, male, we were in charge, our country. And for 100 years or more, we have been grappling with our loss of power. Immigrants came from Catholic lands, Eastern Orthodox uh, and, and uh, Jewish, and then eventually every religion under the sun. People who were not white came in such massive numbers that eventually white people will not be a majority in this country mm-hmm. before too long. Um, uh, we couldn't even agree among ourselves. And as we fought with each other, our power ebbed even more. Um, mm. And the general trend is when groups feel that their power is threatened, they get angry and defensive. Mm. Um White evangelicals for many decades that would have been seen to them as golden decades mm-hmm. uh, were able to say, well, we are the predominant part of the, of the Protestant community now, and we're doing fine. Those liberals may be in trouble, but we're doing fine. Right. That's no longer true. Their numbers are ebbing, too. Yeah. And, um, and when groups feel that their power is declining, they get defensive and one of the things that I can clearly see over the course of my lifetime is the idea that we can win the culture back through evangelism has been abandoned. Yeah. Uh, because nobody's listening. Yeah. So, so if you can't win the culture back through evangelism, maybe you can win the culture back through politics. Mm. You may not be able to tell people about Jesus, but you can get Donald Trump elected. He may be a son of a gun, but he's our son of a gun and he'll do what we want him to do. Mm. Um, he, he resents the same people we resent. He's angry at the same people we're angry at. Yeah. So, um, so he 
represented, I think, a decadent form of white guy anger in America, mm. white Christian guy, to some extent, anger in America. And to the extent that pastors have embraced that, I think they're the ones who have abandoned the gospel. Yeah. Um, I mean, they think that angry reactionaries, you know, smash mouth politics is the way to advance the cause of Jesus in America. Right. I mean, that that is a lot of what the last five years has been about. The exodus from white evangelicalism is directly accelerated by the embrace of nasty white guy politics of the yeah. Trump variety. You know, Rush Limbaugh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, Sean Hannity, Donald yeah. Trump nexus of angry older white guys yeah right angry morally corrupt older white guys who are uh somehow defending us from our enemies right um what if um the oldest lesson in the book that morally corrupt people could not and morally corrupt vision could not advance god's cause in the world right uh, what if that's been borne out again and again so part of the exodus now is people um saying you guys have you guys have totally abandoned anything that was distinctively christian about your message and all you've got is angry reactionary politics i don't want anything to do with that yeah so yeah. part of the space we find ourselves in is a lot of refugees saying mom dad grandma grandpa whatever it is you're you've been on i'm not on that anymore and and i need a different way and this has nothing to do with the spirit of jesus you all taught me better than this exactly exactly yeah, I remember um, when in 2016, when Trump really came to the forefront, I thought, okay, this is actually great. Maybe we'll have a third party. Maybe like, you know, this this is finally the breaking point. How can evangelicals really rally behind this guy? And when they did, I thought to myself, the people who I I know my whole life, who knew me as a child, who taught me, you know, that, you know, um, uh, sexual immorality, you know, uh, pornography is wrong, are now voting for a guy who's on the cover of Playboy magazine, or, or the people who taught me that, that, that marriage is sacred and holy are now supporting a guy who likes to grab women and is on, like, his third marriage. I just, it was really... Um, I, I just felt like, what faith am I a part of? Like, what is happening to my faith, right? Because it just didn't make any sense. You know, I you bring up so many good points. Um, I think what concerns me now for, on my end is that there seems to be a new wave of these conservative media pundits who are really in, um, enthralling a lot of young people, um, which makes me kind of sound like an uh, older person now, you know, like the kids. <laughs> <You're so> old, <laughs> <man>. <laughs> but now that I have an 11th month old, I'm just starting out, but it does change, you know, obviously your perspective on things. Yeah. And, you know, Charlie Kirk is a big one for me. I, I follow a lot of his stuff and he's, I mean, he's massive, millions of followers. Ben Shapiro is another one. Candace Owens, another one. And now I'm also seeing, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but there's actually a network called the Patriot Church Network. It's, it's not, not a whole lot of churches yet. There's maybe like 10, but like their website is just, it's everything that that Patriots want to see. I mean, I'm, I'm reading it right now. There's like three big headlines and one says, we are the Patriots. We are the Patriots of this great nation. We don't put country over God, but we certainly will fight for our freedoms and liberties as bestowed upon us by our creator. We believe we all have unalienable rights, which no man can take away. You just see like the, the Sean Hannity rhetoric just dripping over this as a church. Um, and so I think that that does concern me a little bit to see that like, okay, like there, there's a new generation kind of being taught this and also espousing this. And I just don't know, I, I, I don't know if, if I feel like 
every person could leave the white evangelical church and pastors and leaders and right-wing pundits would still say, it's it's the culture's fault. Like there's, there's no level to which they go, maybe it's us. Like maybe it's our theology. Maybe our, it's, it's, maybe it's, it's our sugar rush Sunday morning service with no theology. Maybe pastors don't realize, but I say this a lot that, um, they're not discipling their congregation. Fox News is discipling them. You know, Sean Hannity is the that's who's who's discipling their people in the pews. I don't think that they understand that though. Um, and sometimes, well, some of them do, and they lose their jobs because they understand it and they push back against it, right? Mm, yeah, yeah, good point. Good point. Um and you know, the January 6th insurrection thing adds a whole adds a whole nother layer to this. Um yeah. Yeah. people who are desperately afraid and believe that their way of life is threatened um, can easily be motivated to extremist politics, right? Um, and so it really helps to, um, to have a broader historical lens and think about, you know, 1930s Germany or um, reactionary movements in Catholic countries uh, like Poland, for example. Poland is a part of the EU a historically Catholic country is responding very negatively to liberalizing currents coming from Western Europe. And Poland is becoming a pretty reactionary, anti-gay Catholic country right now um, because, I, you know, some of the, the fearfulness of liberalizing trends. Russia is fairly similar. In fact, I would say um, some of the authoritarianism uh, mixed with religiosity and nationalism in Russia is not that distant from what we're seeing here. Mm. It's, the, it's the toxifying of, of a majority, a former majority that feels that it is becoming a minority and is losing cultural power. And that's a very dangerous place politically. But what are, maybe this is how I'll end, what, a, what a, the Christian faith ought to provide for us is the way of Jesus, which is not the same in any way as just angry, reactionary, authoritarian politics. It's 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 utterly alien to them. Yeah. Um, uh, people who felt threatened politically crucified Jesus. Um, hmm. And 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 so we follow the crucified one. We're not supposed to be um, on the other side, right? But there's a, and not everybody is all that articulate about it. It takes a fair amount of historical knowledge and theological knowledge to be able to give language to all of this. Yeah. But what, but what a lot of, I think, your listeners understand is there's something, it's not just I have a preference for a different religion, right? right? It's, there's something really uh, scary happening here among the the community that I found such great identity and meaning in for many, many years, it's getting ill. That's what causes people to flee um, because it's worse than just, it's definitely not just a preference difference. It's something more profound than that. You are on the money. Um, you're so spot on. I mean, forgive the crudeness, but it's just seeing things go ass backwards. I mean, that's really what it is. We're looking, we're like, uh, <laughs> This this is not something is wrong. The insurrection was a great again another great example. Uh, not great, but a very painful example of uh, why are there Jesus banners here? Why is there a why is there a group of people praying as men praying in this in the in the Capitol thanking God for this? Like and then 
anyway, we, we could be here for another hour, but just to kind of land the plane a little bit, it, it was, it felt like from 2016 to, to, to even now, no matter what happened that showed that we have a Christian nationalism problem rising, it was always dismissed as not that big of a deal to the point where when a real insurrection happened and people died, the, the new excuse was, oh, those weren't real Christians. And it's like, oh my gosh, there is nothing, there is nothing that, 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 Trump or that these people could do to get people as in mass to really go, wow, this is a problem. <laughs> you know, it, it was just really disappointing. I mean, disappointing, frankly. Well, um, and I think uh, Trump, through his constant erosion of norms and moral standards, helped to prepare the way for that. But yeah. but in the end, Christians are responsible for our own integrity, right? Yeah. And, and we sold it, yeah. you know. Yeah. So so, I think it is time for a movement out, yeah. and that movement out is happening, and 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 you know you're part of it, and I'm part of it, and yeah. we're just we're trying to. I mean, God never leaves never leaves Himself without a witness. Uh, I believe that there is faithfulness in the land, mm. but it may not be where we once thought to find it. Well said. Well, on that note, we can wrap this up. You know, again, I appreciate your time. Why don't you plug away? Where can people buy the book? Are you on social media? Do you have a podcast? Like, where can people find you and follow you? Yeah. Um, uh, my website is davidpgushy.com, and it's being uh, rebooted in a really cool way to become a great resource center now. Great. Um, uh, awesome. Twitter and Facebook, I have a public figure page at dpgushy. Okay. Um, Amazon has all of my books. A lot of other sites do too. Um, and the, the most recent one is um, after evangelicalism. And I'm also going to be, uh, you can get, you can sign up for a newsletter that I'm going to start putting out if you sign, on, sign up on my website for that. So trying to stay active uh, uh, because I think it's a pretty pivotal moment to, to bear witness to a better way right now. Yeah, I don't want to overstate things, but what do they say? Every 500 years, there's like a new reformation that kind of comes up. You know, I, we're right. I think we're kind of primed for something. I mean, it's hard to know when you're in it, but I, I think that this could be bigger than than we imagined. So I agree. Um, hey, great having you. I'll put all that in the show notes. And again, thanks for your time and uh, be blessed. Thank you, Tim. I appreciate it. Es la venta del Día de las Madres en Macy's. Ahorra un 25% extra en regalos increíbles para cada mamá con tu cupón o tarjeta Macy's. Como vestidos, zapatos y más que le encantarán 25 a 40% menos. O compra especiales como un 55-65% menos en salidas de baño, toallas y más accesorios para baño. Y juegos de regalo de fragancias de sus marcas favoritas como Carolina Herrera, Estee Lauder y más. ¿Quieres más regalos? Descarga la app de Macy's diciendo Alexa, open Macy's now. Ahorro sobre precios en oferta y liquidación a pequeñas opciones.